Hello and welcome to the 15th podcast of Edition VFO. My name is David Kellett and I will be speaking to Bethan Hughes today. Bethan is joining us from Berlin. She conceived the work War Societies and Neon for our current exhibition Notes on Abstraction, which is on view till the end of May 2022. The work is based on an installation that Bethan Hughes realized for the Großmünster in Zurich. Today we will talk about her practice as well as about this particular work. Hello Bethan, thank you for joining me today. I was interested, or I think many people are, in how you're using language in your work and uh, what what this kind of language should evoke or what it evokes and also this question of how language can represent certain images probably or thoughts and how you use these in your work. Yeah, do you do you mean words with language there when you say that? <laughs> I mean words, yeah, or sentences where you <laughs> Yeah, because um This is something I'm often confronted with because I use sometimes words in my work with the word vitrines and later with the the neons. Often I'm asked, um, I'm spoken to words because curators are often asking me, are you work with language? And I've made a word vitrine about this this issue uh, in, I think, 2005, just to how many times do I have to say it? I work with words, not with language. All artists work with language. Yeah? This, for me, is because there's two sorts of language. When I'm using words or when we use words and many other artists use words, we were using verbal language and then there's also non-verbal language like smiling and what I'm wearing if, if it's intentional and gestures and smiling and posing and all these silences and paint and colors isn't using a non-verbal language but nevertheless they're both language that's my next word vitrine will be <laughs> on this difference between verbal language that uses words and non-verbal language that uses other means to communicate. I'm, I'm working with, I think I reflect on these issues a lot, what it means. Why, why is the difference also so important for you between saying just language or words? Because I think that people or me using language as a term is like um, opposite of image or like language as the opposite of imagery in a way. And image is also a very broad term. So you would rather prefer to say than a representation or photography or drawing than image. Yes, no, I suppose we are talking the same thing when we say an image or a representation, a picture or a description. A verbal or on, on a page it's a, an image isn't it and often we we exist on a double level I suppose don't we if when I say something 
I also see something. You know, there's a double. If I'm saying bullshit, it means I'm not really seeing what I'm saying. No, it's this. Um, there's a connection between my head and my body, if you like. And when there's no connection, we we say rubbish. <laughs> no. So it's hard to speak when you really want to speak on a deep level because we're thinking about something all the time because we want to communicate what we're thinking, in fact. This is what I, I always loved Wittgenstein and many artists loved Wittgenstein because he's, he's talking to us and thinking about something at the same time, it's very, very strong in, in, in a philosopher like Wittgenstein. So he's, he knows exactly what he's speaking about because he's thinking about very specific things that he never tells us about. <laughs> but we, can, we feel it. I think it's a feeling we have. But then let me reverse the question and say, like, how, how would you or how do you use words or why, why are words so important in your work, like as one part of your work? I suppose I started to use words in the early 90s when I once I discovered that the way my... Um, my non-verbal language, which was the floor pieces that weren't using words, were communicated by the press in an outrageous way for me. I, I disagreed um, um, on the way they were spoken about, and this frustrated me and upset me a lot because the way I made the floors... And the way I still make work today is very intuitive. It's after the event I think about the thing. You know, you can't, it, it's really, um, I don't know, there were reports, a lot of reports that I was so clever and had read a lot of philosophy and all these references. But I'm. it doesn't work like that. It's really... We absorbed so many things from our environment quite naturally. So, you know, all these references to artworks or it's just, um, it's only Duchamp I've really researched on a deep level. Yes, but why, why Duchamp then, for example, also for the people who probably don't know your work that well? I got in it quite naturally by being curious and I was hearing a lot about Duchamp and then looking at his work and the more I looked at his work and and heard and then heard what was being said about this work um I could see or rather feel different things in the work of Duchamp and then I started to investigate what Duchamp was saying about his own work and then trying to match, does that correspond to what I see in the work? Is he lying to me? Is he bullshitting? Is that truth? Is it 
So I I just kind of gradually got into Duchamp and I got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and further into the work, if you like. It was just um, by pure curiosity that I got um, to know Duchamp on a deeper level. Yeah. And where does the investigation kind of stop or the research or where does it transform into a new body of work then? Because there is also a lot of work that references or that works with concepts coming from Duchamp. Yeah, I, I suppose it works on so many levels. Duchamp, going into Duchamp, influenced me a lot in my work. Like I would never have um, curated something like, um, well, did an artist, it's a project, like in Zug, where I worked with collections, with, um, I worked with pay, um, fine art, a fine art collection, um, a collection, an early um, turn of the century design collection from Vienna and also from my own works. That's nothing unusual, but what was unusual was the way I ordered the work, which was categorizing. It was arranged um, um, according to the four seasons, the works. And they were arranged according to colors, like the the bright ones, brightly colored was the summer. Spring was more green, I think. And then there was the winter, which was, for me, the more successful. It was black and white and silver and very cold and very sharp. Well, you wouldn't think it, but all of that comes from me studying Duchamp. <laughs> so it's, there's, studying Duchamp, I suppose, was like going to the gym or re-going to the gym and really doing hard exercises. Because Duchamp is very um, rigorous because of chess. So he's challenging you to um, think better and to doubt, uh, is he saying the truth or um, is that me who's projecting my own knowledge onto him? And so many art historians, artists also, they they do it less often because it's not our hasn't been traditionally our job. Um, it's it's a trap. Also, Duchamp knows because he's because it's the beginning of conceptual art. Um, he knows how to manipulate us because he's had to learn. He's applied the rules of chess to painting what he knew about painting. So it's it's funny when you see, um, you know, the, the art historians who know chess, they only see chess. And I learned all of that. By, we just see, don't we, what we've put inside our heads. So this is a funny, we have to be very careful with that because what I did with, with studying Duchamp was chess doesn't interest me one bit. I'm not, I'm not orientated. It's not my character. But I had to learn the rules of chess. 
because I needed them to study Duchamp. So then I can recognize, ah, he's doing that there, and that's to do with the cavalier, and, and that's to do with the, um, the bishop, and so on. He uses these things, and you need to know them to um, be able to read him, but read him, not my projection of him. So that's the rigor. It gave me a certain rigor, and that's why I'm... Duchamp taught me a lot, much more, um, not only about his own work, but about a method. And and the method, I mean, you described some things already, but the method of, uh, like, what what kind of method would it be? Or what, I mean, there are probably several methods that he used. Well, you know, you were asking me the question about... Um, Another question you asked about um, that I use a lot of media, like um, moving image, word between the words and um, the watercolors and ready-mades and objects and sewing things. And lots of artists, we're doing that today, aren't we? More and more artists are multi, we're, we're touching a lot of things. And we can only do that because um, our main media, if you like, and that's where Bruce, Bruce Nauman will come in, our main media is language. And both, it's like I'm, I feel close to somebody like Bruce Nauman because he's, he, he, he uses um, both verbal language, words, and nonverbal language. Yeah, gestures and colors and perform performance and all of that. Duchamp also was um, one of the first in contemporary art, modern art, to touch on. Um, he he goes from film to collage to uh, installations to performance to uh, drawing. Uh, even he painted at the last um, um, in the end of his life. So he doesn't when you're when you become more a thinker, which artists, when you're no longer a painter, let's say like Duchamp, it's because he was like that, wasn't he? From the beginning, he he preferred to think in the end rather than to make things by paint. He made things intellectually. So he's thinking, oh, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that, I will leave. There is um, a certain technique to what Duchamp does that we, inf we infer, don't we? We read between the lines when it's not said verbally to us. We do we read our environment every day or we'd be bloody lost. I mean, we're always interpreting our environments. So reading, interpreting, it's the same thing. We do it with... So it's to do with language. That's why, you know, there's another word vitrine I made, which is on this topic, which um, is um, as long as you have something to say, You can say it with anything, you see? And that's what artists are doing. 
I can say it in words to you, but I I can also say um, an artist that are really very agile. You jump from verbal language to non-verbal language, which we all do anyway. I mean, you're nodding at me. That's not words. That's just a gesture, and that's non-verbal language. So I think today we're just more sophisticated as artists. So you're dabbling in everything, but it doesn't really matter if you say it in film, if you say it in watercolor, if you say it in in uh, objects. It amounts to the same thing. It's either badly said or well said. Can uh, can the other people read it, or do I fail to make my thoughts? Um, uh, to communicate my thoughts. But you said something like uh, which, which I would like to take on um, reading between the lines. Um, I think this is also something important for your work that people can read in between the lines, and also like there is always some, yeah, some aspect of humor in it, but it's also related to the idea of being able to read between the lines. So how, how do you employ kind of, or how do you work with, with, with words in that sense to, to, yeah, or even with questions um, con con containing words so that people can, can read something between the lines or probably can laugh about it and yeah. Yeah, I try to guess I try to guess what you have in your head. That's how you... I try to guess what you're going to read between the lines. That's how I construct. Because with words, what's, what's magical, part of the magic of words is we're often re talking about things that aren't present. And that's, that's the magic of words for me. That's the whole point often of, of, yeah, I suppose the main magic of a word is, of, of words, is that we're talking about things that are actually not present. But that's true when, when, when we are looking at a work of art, reading a work of art, we read it largely through what we have in, in here. We're not reading even what's there. We have to read it through what we have, what we've put inside. So that's why people get pissed off with the contemporary art. If they haven't been educated, they think, what the hell's that? And that's normal. You have to take people by the hand. If they, It's not their fault that they think it's a pile of, I don't know, cabbage. If it's it's they've yet to learn that no because um, what does cabbage mean in your head and if you if you're um, a good artist you've predicted what that audience might think in front of a pile of cabbage let's say culturally can't think in Wales I don't think we have the cabbage isn't featured culturally. <laughs> but it, it might be, I'm certainly is in other cultures. So you can, we work with things like that very consciously. 
and the better the art is, the more agile they are at working with all those things that is not in the work, but they're in the head of our audience, isn't it? It's all to do with that. So, so you have to know that Duchamp, for example, I know I go on about Duchamp, but he's the only one I really studied in any extent. You have to know that he's French. He's a man. He was coming from Normandy. He was playing. He was playing chess. All he 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 was Catholic. All these things are tools that can help you to read that work of art. So it's it's different looking at a Swiss artist. You might miss things because you're not Swiss, and that's fine. Because it's works of art are very mysterious, aren't they? That's part of looking. It's it, it it's like looking at I don't know half the planet. We don't we don't even understand most things we're looking at when we go for a walk in the park. And it's the same mystery when we go for a walk in a museum. <laughs> we. And the more mysterious it is, the more attracted we are to it, like the fountain of Duchamp. If you're open enough, if you're um, narrow-minded, if you were educated to have too many prejudgments, then you're going to smash the thing, aren't you? You're going to kick the fountain. Or... But that's to do with our education is not... Um, uh, the fault of that other person. They've just been educated that way. Can you tell me or us just a bit more about the project War Societies and Neon at the Grossmünster, how you um, conceived it and where, where the project, how, how it all started and uh, how you came up with the idea of this neon installation in the crypt? Right, um, so we were asked, um, the artists were asked to propose something. It's a project they have in the crypt, specific to the crypt of the Grossmünster. And you're asked to propose something there. And it was all quite quick. Not, it, it didn't, the, the whole, from the proposal to... Um, from the invitation to the proposal. It was quite a quick process. And when I went to visit the, the crypt, uh, the curator that was looking after me or had proposed me, he at the end of the visit to the crypt, he gave me a book on, on the Grossmonster, on the architecture, on the bas-reliefs, on, on everything, all in German. <laughs> I, I don't read German, I don't understand. And, but there was a lot of pictures. <laughs> so I came to the project through this book, and it's a marvelous book because it's, um, there's a lot of black and white um, photographs of these medieval bas-reliefs, and there's a lot um, at the Grossmonster. 
And I was fascinated. I couldn't believe it, that they had all these things there and I hadn't even seen them. Um, I was pointed out one, there's one in the crypt of a hare and the the priest that's part of the, the project also. Um, he had already talked about this hair and its significance, what uh, what it meant. And then in this book, I saw the um, the Gito relief, what they call the Gito relief, and it reminded me. I was looking at it. It reminded me, reminded me very much of Bruce Nauman's um, Sex and Death of the 1985. He did a big, big series of, of neons. And Sex and Death by Bruce Nauman has six figures, like the Guido relief, six figures. They're both divided in three, three. And... They, they both have a man um, holding a dagger and they both simulate movement. In, in the Gito relief, it's suggested movement. These six figures, the, it's the, the man is just about to put, plunge the dagger into the throat of the third figure. And then the third figure is just about to slash the other one with a big sword, and a kind of second figure grasps his wrist. So there's a it's um, implied movement in this Gito relief. Reminded me of the movement that Bruce Nauman was doing by putting on and off the lights, and. Uh, that was that's that's what made me think shit it would be nice to do neon in the crypt and bring light down in somewhere very very dark and it, in relation to the the um uh, the I can't, I can't remember what they called the windows the stained glass window because the there's the polka has um, made this incredible work in the 2009, I think. Yeah. He made all these stained glass windows, which are very, very beautiful, very, very impressive as, as a work. And there's also Giacometti, who made the window in the end, it was a 20th century window. Polka is 21st century. Then there's Giacometti, and then there's even an older um, stained glass window from the 19th century. And because I was inspired by these drawings, just because I also draw, that means I'm interested in drawing, or let's hope I am, <laughs> takes me to the, the beauty of the drawings of these on the bas-reliefs. There's many... I mean, the Gito as a drawing is not so beautiful. It was more the action of these six figures that inspired me. But there were others that I chose because I thought they, the drawing, the quality of the drawing was beautiful. But the point of the exercise was this chance thing of the Gito relief reminding me of Bruce Nauman 
Bruce Nauman is the neon guy for all of us. And I also have been doing a lot of neon in the last few years. And then a desire to bring color uh, into um, the crypt because of the history of stained glass windows, which were at their height in the medieval. This kind of Gothic was the stained glass window kind of pinnacle. And the bas-reliefs are from the the medieval um, times also. So the, it's, the way I work is very natural, if you like. It's a, just kind of one thing will lead to another. How did you then come up with the title or what is the title then referring to in, in, in ways of what is depicted or how, how does it also play with, uh, yeah, with the idea of, of time or historicity? Yeah, uh, Wars, Societies and Neon was um, also a war thing. It's um, the Gito Relief. It's a bunch of men. It's very violent. And also the Bruce Nauman series are very, very violent. And it's all kind of um, this violence of men which leads to war and um, carnage. Not for nothing, just for the sake of, of, of uh, like in Russia now, of getting land. It's a pretext always to get, um, to gain property for, for people. And so it's, it's this kind of violence, and that's why I was introducing the animals and the monkey and this man-eating monster is what we associate violence is the our less refined side isn't it it's the the chaos in us is animal it's it's people um act irrationally they try to rationalize like putin now is rationalizing things such as the the accusing people of the genocide and all of that, but that's his rationalization, which is irrational anyway, to justify what he wants, which is just to um, destroy the Ukraine to get, to get it for himself, and that's the usual story with people anyway. So it's <laughs> it's kind of more societies and neon from, and because we're in the medieval. It brings us to think that nothing changed. It's always going to be the bloody same until we um, ban wars in a more firm way and and help um, predict. Um, governments have known about Putin for quite a time. They didn't do nothing because it's easier to do nothing. And now it's too late. So, And this should never happen again. Yes, Un unfortunately, yeah. So this war society, a neon, also brings us to a, a, I was thinking of this earlier work of Bruce Nauman, he made raw war. You know, it's it's uh, just the word war and then cancelled by raw, or is it in the time I can't? It's from the 70s, it's from earlier than he, this big series he did that are very violent. So it was kind of bridging to say that nothing actually changes. 
Oh, it changes very slowly in society. It's very, 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 very so slow, slower than the snail. So that was the and the doing it in words, like for your edition, was to it was arranged like a banner because we use these colors. Each word has a separate color because words are going horizontally, at least in our culture, we write from left to right. Then they go like bands of flags because we're associatively, we're already in our heads in the area of war and they always carried the banner at war. But my banner is just an advert for the Grossmunster Neot, for the work I did in Grossmunster. So it's it's just playing on little, very, very little things like that. Thank you, Bethan, and thank you all for joining us today. If you would like to know more about the installation Wars, Societies and Neon, I can recommend the eponymous book that was published by the Großmünster in Zurich and was released earlier this year. For more information about the general artist practice, I can recommend the book Bethan Hughes, Research Notes, that was published in 2014 by Walter König Books. If you would like to know more about our current group exhibition Notes on Abstraction or the edition of Beth and Hughes that she conceived for this exhibition, please consult our website vfo.ch. If you would like to request any images or for more information, please feel free to reach out to us on info at vfo.ch. We hope to welcome you in our premises or if you join us for our next podcast. Thank you.